0: Well, it's nice to be here again. I love this spot, great place and a great community. And I know that uh, I've heard that lately you've been studying precepts. There has been a precept study group and many of you are interested in in really uh, examining uh, Zen and Buddhist uh, ethics. And in fact, uh, at home, in my Dharma seminar that meets uh, in California, we've also been Uh, embarking on a study of the precepts. And so I wanted to uh, give you one of the talks that I gave in the seminar uh, about precepts. And this was the first talk in the series. And so it's a kind of the result of my thinking about, not the 16 bodhisattva precepts, but going back a few steps and thinking about the basis of ethics and morality in Buddhism and in Western thought. So that's what this talk is, is really covering tonight. So it's kind of uh, ruminations, not necessarily finished thoughts, but ruminations uh, about uh, ethics, morality, precepts, where they come from, why they're important, why we're interested. And when you think about it, we, we all take uh, the idea of precepts... Oh, hi, Erica. Hi. How nice to see you. We, we all take the idea of uh, morality, precepts, ethics uh, as a given. And who, who wouldn't agree in polite society, that uh, ethics is a good idea and a total lack of ethics is a bad idea. I mean, I think that this is sort of axiomatic. Uh, But uh, at the same time, we all understand that human beings, uh, we look at ourselves, we look at one another, and we realize that human beings are seething masses of unconscious impulses. So maybe we should begin our study of precepts by clarifying what is morality and and how do we come by it, given given that situation uh, in in human life. Because if we don't really take a look at that, uh, we might be fooling ourselves. And in fooling ourselves about the basis of our ethics, we might end up, in the pursuit of the ethical, being quite unethical. And this happens, right? You know, you've all been, I'm sure, at one time or another in your lives, the victims of someone's ethics, someone's sense of what's right, and you are being wrong in relation to that. And sometimes, you know, great violence is done in the name of ethics and morality. So maybe we need to look and see, you know, what is the real basis for this and and what what makes sense. So I I was thinking about this, and, and and I started with, you know, way back, like in the very beginning, before uh, history, uh, when human beings were first uh, becoming human beings. And, you know, in early evolutionary theory, uh, seemed, uh, at least on the surface, to support the idea that morality is, is not fundamental to our being human. It's something extra or added later if you think about uh, uh, early evolutionary theory, it it seems to be saying that that to be human, let's be honest, is to be uh, a particular kind of an animal, and the basic thing for all animals is to survive, and the ones who are strongest and fittest survive. So, the really important thing, the really basic thing, is power and force, and maybe, okay, a little luck maybe, uh, but that's what matters, not so much goodness. And so uh, you could see why you know uh, many conservative Christians might get agitated about the idea of evolution because it seems to be leading us in that direction. Uh, it seems like it would of necessity kind of weaken our sense of of morality and, and ethics and religion. It looks like you know evolutionary thought would be saying, well, what really matters is that you thrive and that you survive, and if you are going to be nice and ethical, that's nice, but that's not really the main point uh, in terms of what's, what's basic to a human life. It's a sort of ornament, a refinement of human life. It doesn't flow, ethics doesn't flow from our basic human nature. And you could even go a step further and say, well, you know, ethics is for weak people. Ethics is for people who don't have what it takes to kind of plunge forward and do what needs to be done to survive and thrive in this world. People who are held back by scruples, you know, are often unable to kind of get it done, right? Uh, like you hear that said in business, you know, you've got to get it done. And uh, if you think too much or you're too refined in your ethics, maybe that stands in your way. So that, that would be kind of how you might look at things uh, if you followed a very simple-minded idea of uh, evolutionary theory. But uh, like everything else, evolutionary theory is also in a state of evolution. Uh, And so in recent years, uh, studying uh, evolutionary biology and sociobiology, people have begun to notice that that morality, in other words, morality, if we say, is the ability to have empathy for others, to cooperate with others, be altruistic, be helpful, be kind, that that human capacity might actually itself have a powerful evolutionary function. Maybe associations of human animals that know how to cooperate and communicate and work together are going to survive better than those who that the thing to do is duke it out with everybody. Maybe, in fact, that's not going to be as successful as the ability to cooperate and uh, work together with others. So what's at stake in these debates about evolution is important, because the question is, is morality, ethics, something that's natural to us, something that comes from the center of what we are, or is it some sort of an imposition from the outside some kind of constraint some sort of unnatural constraint and and if it is that then it's always going to be shaky you know because it's not coming from what we fundamentally are so probably this is an unsolvable question and probably it's a matter of it ends up to be a matter of belief And belief, you know, has two sides. I mean, one side is belief as ideology, belief as imposition. And the other side, I think, more uh, coming from the side of our practice where we're, you know, sitting on the cushion with a great deal of honesty as to what's actually going on. We might develop a kind of belief which is not an ideology but more like a sense of certainty about this is what's going on with me. I know it because I I see it uh, within me. So we, we, may, we may have either one of those two kinds of beliefs, and we may believe this or that about uh, morality, that it's basic to us, or that it's added from the outside. But anyway, whatever we believe and whatever kind of belief we have, we, we always have to admit that we could be wrong. Now, then the next thing you get to is our own uh, culture, our own religion. Uh, And that means, in the the cultural context we're all living in, in the Judeo-Christianity, which, in its broadest sense, is one perspective. Now, there's a whole different idea of ethics in this context. A powerful belief arises, which, for the people who believed it, must have appeared, not as an ideology, but as an inner certainty, that a God created the world and God rules the world and God is either suggesting or probably more like demanding or requiring human goodness, morality. So in a way, you know, with this perspective, it really doesn't make any difference whether morality is uh, natural or unnatural to us. In fact, in many ways, if you read the Bible, immorality itself seems to be pretty natural to us. I mean, Adam and Eve, from the beginning, naturally sin. And God seems to require that we transcend what's natural to us. That despite the fact that we have this tendency you know, to sin, that we should be holy and we should be good. And this is going to be a struggle with our own inner nature. But it's a struggle that is not optional, it's a struggle that's required uh, for human beings. To make a long story short and, you know, make it oversimplify, you could say that in the Jew- on the Jewish side of this, um, we have to struggle. It's a struggle. On the Christian side of this, it's also a struggle, but not to worry, God will help us, because God is more merciful, you know, in the Christian tradition. So God will help us, and and we'll still have to struggle, but not as much. But in either case, it's a struggle. Morality is a struggle. And it's not so easy to believe in God. Uh, And we're going to have to work against the grain of our human tendency toward evil. And a lot is at stake, because if we don't work against the grain of this, we're going to suffer a lot. Hell is awaiting us. It's a terrible situation in hell. If you read your Dante, you know how, just how bad you know, this is. But even if there isn't a place uh, called hell, and I think nowadays you know, we've explored more places in the universe and we can't find any like location where this could be located, so we don't really need hell because we have like, remorse, guilt, and bad conscience, which might even be worse, actually, than, than burning. You know, might be actually better than suffering the kinds of pangs of remorse and and guilt and bad conscience that can really, you know, really literally make us insane. So this is the, I'm just saying, this is the sort of situation in our, we all have these cultural roots when we bring up the question of ethics and morality. Now the interesting thing to me is that in the last hundred years or so, uh, this whole edifice uh, that's so built into the foundations of our culture has been under attack. And, you know, we already heard a little bit from Darwin, but then there's Nietzsche and all the thinkers, pretty much everybody in Western thought, secular Western philosophy, since Nietzsche can't ignore Nietzsche's thought. And even though the average person doesn't read Nietzsche, uh, he, his thought is very powerful in sort of batter like a battering ram, battering against the, the, the foundations of this ethical framework in Western thought. Uh, so I've been reading lately, you know, in, in thinking about precepts, I decided I would read Nietzsche's uh, great work called The Genealogy of Morals, where he purports to figure out, you know, where, what the real story is about ethics and morals. And more or less, I'm again I'm necessarily making this uh, clearer and simpler than it is, but more or less, what does Nietzsche think is the origin of the very idea? Because when you think about it, like, why would there be an idea of good or bad to begin with? It's not necessary. Why, why would it exist? It seems to be so fundamental to the way we look at the world. Where does it come from? And he says, it come, f- comes from the earliest sort of social groupings of people into uh, higher and lower classes of people. That's where the idea of good and evil comes comes from. And he tells us that he's researched this in all human cultures and finds that everywhere the idea of the good is associated with noble, powerful, heroic persons who end up being in charge and amassing wealth and power. And the idea of bad or evil is not really evil, it's just bad lesser, and it has to do with the people who lack those qualities. So to be like those people is to be be bad, to be like the powerful, the noble, the great, the heroic, is to be good. And we hate to admit this in our time, because, he says, we have been so... Biased by these ideas of Christianity and Judaism and democracy and equality, that we hate to see this, but this is actually the truth. This is where good and bad, the concepts of good and bad come from. And of course, you know, this sounds terrible. I mean, who who likes this idea? We recoil against it. I mean, when when you hear of it, I'm assuming that you feel like I do. When I hear that idea, it's like, my God, you know, I, I really hate that idea. That's how much I'm conditioned. To see, to see it differently, that the idea just seems repugnant to me. And he says that that's because we've had 2,000 years of perverse conditioning against what is our basic sort of inner, inner nature, and that we've been twisted you know, by this thousands of years of conditioning from seeing what is really within us. In other words, we're really brainwashed, we're deeply brainwashed about our real sense of, of values. And uh, he has a passage in here that uh, I won't read, it's kind of long, but, it, but it basically, and, and this is one of the reasons why uh, uh, Nietzsche's uh, anti-Semitism is so strong, because uh, he uh, thinks that it's all the fault of the Jews. Of course, he also... Has a lot of problems with almost everybody else, so we can't, you know, he's not like a conventional anti Semite who doesn't like Jews. He just basically has problems with everybody, with all the Christians and everybody else. But he says that, you know, it was, it's, it's Judaism that invented the idea of turning the entire ethical system upside down. And when you think about it, this is the radical thing about Judeo Christianity. It says that, you know, the meek shall inherit the earth. This is the opposite of the way we really look at it, he says. The unfortunate, the disadvantaged, are good and holy and sacred, and the powerful, the wealthy, are bad, and uh, you know, those who are less ethically sound. It's just the reverse, Nietzsche says, of the way we're actually built. So this is a disturbing thought uh, when you think about it, but Nietzsche is very, very convincing on this point, and you know, when you think about it, uh, you know, there does seem to be some truth to it, and particularly when you consider the tremendously twisted sense of self-regard that most of us have. I mean, I think the average person has a lot of sense of being unworthy, of somehow feeling vaguely guilty vaguely like I'm not quite right, you know, and I think one of the sort of unpalatable but inescapable lessons of the cushion is that you begin to notice how much that is in you. Maybe you didn't notice it before, but you sit there long enough and you begin to notice how much of that uh, is within you and how deeply buried that is inside. And you experience that enough and you, and you may begin to get the idea that there might just be some wacky, twisted reversal of psychology deep within you, deep within all of us, in our culture, that has really damaged us as a culture, as a, as a civilization. I mean, this is really possible. And you begin to... You begin to see that, you begin to think about the way we are with one another, and the way that we relate to one another, and the way we relate to ourselves. I mean, a sense of self-respect and self-love is not a common thing in our culture. It's not common among us. It's unusual. And mostly, we're, we're working real hard to try to get to some baseline of positive self-regard. Why would that be, if it weren't for the fact that perhaps something like what Nietzsche's talking about is really true, that there's been some tremendous reversal of energy within our culture that's caused us to habitually turn against ourselves. So maybe this is just human consciousness in general, or maybe, as Nietzsche is arguing, it may be a particular feature of the Western self. It may be a particular feature of uh, Judeo-Christian roots. Now, of course, don't get me wrong, I'm not an anti-Judeo-Christian person. I mean, I, I, as I said in the beginning, I, I'm Jewish myself and practice Jewish meditation and love to read the Bible, find it very interesting and very important. But there's no doubt there, there's been a lot of interpretation of the tradition that has been, you could say, you know, pretty unwholesome and pretty toxic. Sin, guilt, and all that, and fire and brimstone, this is pretty tough stuff. And it's, and it's buried right at the heart of, of who we are. So here here's a passage I'll read you from Nietzsche on. This is from an essay. The, 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 the book is divided into a series of essays. This essay is called uh, uh, Guilt, Bad Conscience, and Related Matters. And here's what he said. says about this. This is sort of, how it comes to be that we have uh, guilt, bad conscience, and related matters, and that we think that we can be ethical in the first place. He says, To breed an animal with the right to make promises. is the human animal, the only animal that makes promises. Is not this the paradoxical problem nature has set itself with regard to man? And uh, this is 19th century writing, so he says man. And, and is it not man's true problem. That the problem has in fact been solved to a remarkable degree will seem all the more surprising if we do full justice to the strong opposing force, the faculty of oblivion. Oblivion is not merely a vis-inerti, as is often claimed, but an active screening device responsible for the fact that what we experience and digest psychologically does not, in the state, stage of digestion, emerge into consciousness any more than what we ingest physically does. The role of this active oblivion is that of a concierge, to shut out temporarily the doors and windows of consciousness, to protect us from the noise and agitation with which our lower organs work for or against one another to introduce a little quiet into our consciousness so as to make room for the nobler functions and functionaries of our organism which do the governing and planning. When you think about it, you know, walk down the street in Brooklyn or especially, you know, midtown Manhattan, the only way you could stand the experience of maybe three blocks of that is oblivion. You cut out most of what's going on, otherwise you can't function. And every day, the amount of impressions that are coming in is immense. So the only way that you can survive is through oblivion. That's what he's saying. This concierge maintains order and etiquette in the household of the psyche, which immediately suggests there can be no happiness, no serenity, no hope, no pride, no present without oblivion. A man in whom this screen is damaged and inoperative is like a dyspeptic. Bad stomach, you know. Not, not merely like one. He can't be done with anything. If you didn't forget, imagine if you remembered everything that was went on in one day of your life, and you remembered it continually. You'd go nuts. Just one day would be enough to keep your mind occupied for the rest of your life. Now now this naturally forgetful animal for whom oblivion represents a power a form of strong health has created for itself an opposite power that of remembering by whose aid in certain cases oblivion may be suspended specifically in cases where it is a question of promises if you make a promise you have to remember the promise if you make if i make a promise to you and then after i make the promise oblivion sets in and i totally forget that i made the promise it's not a promise the only way I can do it is if I have selective memory. I remember the promise over time. But I do not, by this I do not mean a purely passive succumbing to past impressions, the indigestion of being unable to be done with a pledge once made, but rather an active not wishing to be done with it, a continuing to will what has once been willed, a veritable memory of the will, so that between the original determination and the actual performance of the thing willed, a whole world of new things, conditions, even volitional acts, can be interposed without snapping the long chain of the will. But how much all this presupposes? A man who wishes to dispose of his future in this manner must first have learned to separate necessary from accidental acts, to think causally, to see distant things as though they were near at hand, to distinguish means from ends. In short, he must have become not only calculating, but himself calculable, regular, even to his own perception, if he is to stand pledge for his own future, as a guarantor does." So what Nietzsche is arguing here is that our experience is so immense and so powerful that the only way that we can be ethical and keep promises is to reduce our experience to a manageable uh, proportion and reduce ourselves. So he's arguing that of necessity, morality and ethics is a kind of taming and reducing of what it means to be human. So, here's the conclusion of this essay, which I find to be chillingly if a little drastic, so chillingly accurate. Man, with his need for self-torture, his sublimated cruelty resulting from the cooping of his up of his animal nature within a polity, invented bad conscience in order to hurt himself after the blocking off of the more natural outlet of his cruelty. Then this guilt-ridden man seized upon religion in order to exacerbate his self-torment to the utmost. (laughs) The thought of being in God's debt became his new instrument of torture. He focused in God the last of the opposites he could find to his true and inveterate animal instincts, making these a sin against God. He stretched himself upon the contradiction God and devil or good and evil as on a rack. He projected all his denials of self, nature, naturalness, out of himself as affirmations, as true being, embodiment, reality, as God, as transcendence, as eternity, as endless torture, as hell, as the infinitude of guilt and punishment. In such psychological cruelty, we can see an insanity of the will that is without parallel. Man's will to find himself guilty, and unredeemably so, his will to believe that he might be punished to all eternity without ever expunging his guilt, His will to poison the very foundation of things with the problem of guilt and punishment and thus to cut off once and for all his escape from this labyrinth of obsession. His will to erect an ideal in order to assure himself of his own absolute unworthiness. I mean, I actually this is extreme, but I actually think this is not unusual. I mean, we all do have an idea of sort of the ideal person that we're all supposed to be and we're all failing at this. You know, we're all failing at this. We have this in our minds, and we're measuring ourselves against this. And even though we might not, not nowadays think of it as, you know, sin and guilt and remorse in relation to God, we transpose the same thing into psychological terms. What a mad, unhappy animal is man. What strange notions occurred to him. What perversities, what paroxysms of nonsense, what bestialities of idea burst from him the moment he has prevented ever so little from being a beast of action. All this is exceedingly curious and interesting, but died with such, dark, such a dark, somber, enervating sadness that one must resolutely tear away one's gaze. Here, no doubt, is sickness, the most terrible sickness that has wasted man thus far. And if one is still able to hear, but how few these days have ears to hear it, in this night of torment and absurdity, the cry, love, ring out, the cry of rapt longing, of redemption in love, he must turn away with a shudder of invincible horror. In other words, what he's saying is the whole of our religious life and of our psychological Edifice based on this religious tradition has led us so far away from love, actual love, and only in the direction of sort of guilt and unworthiness that it's too painful even to contemplate. Man harbors too much horror, and the earth has been a lunatic asylum for too long. So, Nietzsche is a very entertaining. Writer, you know, and very interesting and, and, and really, really. Uh, so, so, I'm having great fun, you know, reading this book. I recommend it highly. And it's pretty strong stuff. And, like I say, when you think about it, although it's very extreme and, and repugnant in many ways, you have to admit that he may be onto something here. And, and if you see that, you, you will be in good company because, like I say, most of the important uh, secular thinkers of the period. Uh, have foundations uh, in in Nietzsche. Um, now, for instance, the good uh, Dr. Freud. Now think about it, Dr. Freud, who invented, you know, our modern conceptions of psychology. Pretty much saw morality in the same way. He thought that morality, as it was practiced in 19th century Europe, among his clientele, was more or less a toxic form of repression, that people were going around totally repressed in the name of their ethics and morality. So Freud was really influenced, uh, if not directly, then certainly in the same vein uh, from what Nietzsche was thinking about. And he did see our unconscious as a seething cauldron of illicit urges that constantly needed to be controlled by forces and other things more subtle than force. And the, difference, the only difference is that while Nietzsche said you know, we should celebrate this creative urge even if it you know, shades over into violence and, and you know, immorality, Freud was more of a conventional uh, person who saw the, the need for society and so on. But he actually, in, in a way, ex- except for the conclusion, the, the whole methodology and the whole kind of view was pretty much the same, really. So there's Darwin, there's Freud, there's Nietzsche. And already, and these are like the you know, most important thinkers of, of the last century... And with the three of them, already the foundations of traditional Western morality are already like pretty weak. They're being whacked at pretty hard with these very (laughs) persuasive thinkers. And now we could also add, if we wanted to, we might as well, Marx and other thinkers like Foucault, who argue that that public morality, the idea that we create governments for the common good, and that governments do good and are set up for the purpose of, I mean, who believes this now? Does anybody think that our governments are, are sort of based on ethics and morality? They may sometimes speak as if they are, but who, who in, in this world believes such things? I mean, I think we all believe now that governments are based on power, power asserting itself over the underprivileged maybe using the language of morality to be you know to make it sound good and you know i mean i think we've been many of us uh in a bad mood for 20 or 30 years or more you know over you know especially lately i mean right at the moment i think we have a a, a wonderful president of the united states i'm really enthusiastic about him but before that boy you know it was pretty Tough to to read the newspaper and to think about the actions of public actions of our governments, not only here but elsewhere. And, And, you know, think about this. What does it do to you and me and all of us inside to think that the people who rule our major institutions are like that? You know, we say it's them, it's not us. But do we really say that? Does it erode somehow our sense of what it means to be a decent human being to look around and see our society and view it in that way and to really believe that it is that way? There's a lot of pain in that. And maybe, like I say, at bottom, it may be our own pain. Maybe we feel like these rapacious, power-mad selfish leaders Let's be honest, maybe they're just reflections of us. You know, maybe maybe they're just maybe we're actually not so much different from them. Maybe in the bottom of our hearts, you know, we can't help but feel that way and then it's kind of very discouraging. So, I'm saying this is the state of affairs, I believe, you know, in where we've come following along the line of our western conceptions of morality we've come to that position where we've had perhaps a morality that somewhere along the line really got twisted into sin and guilt and and, and you know and sort of inner, eating ourselves up alive and then it got Projected out into society, to where we then and then from society back into ourselves. So it's a, and then and then it was. It's been under attack for over a hundred years. So, like I say, this is all speculative and extreme. I'm you know quoting extreme authors here, but I actually think that there's a lot of truth to this. That we're in a we've been beaten up and battered up in terms of how we view ourselves deeply inside and in our, in our own human goodness, and even the whole basis of goodness and the purpose of goodness has been, I think, deeply confused in our culture. <sighs> then along comes Buddhism. Thank, thank goodness. <clears throat> Not that Buddhism is any better, but it's, it refreshes the scene. Because it comes to us. What we're talking about here in terms of Western morality is what might be a very beautiful and wonderful teaching embedded in a culture and the culture's contradiction over a period of time and therefore getting used up, worn out, and maybe counterproductive. And Buddhism comes into Western culture now without all of that, you see. I'm not talking about Buddhism as it is in Asian culture, but Buddhism as it comes to our culture comes of necessity fresh. So now let's think about ethics and morality from the standpoint of, of Buddhism. So, again, I'll make <coughs> big statements and everything, you know, the more you, I, I've noticed this, maybe you've noticed this, the more you think about any one thing, the more confusing it gets. Mm-hmm. Because yes, that's true, but also this is true, you know, or maybe that's true. So So I'm going to make some big statements uh, that are debatable, but I think in general, probably fair statements. So, let's say that in Buddhism there is the assumption that human beings are both naturally good and bad. In other words, there's the assumption that we are potentially capable of beautiful ethical conduct a completely uh, natural human dignity of tremendous acts of kindness and love, but that there's definitely a tendency in us toward confusion which twists our highest capabilities and all too often turns them sour. And one of my famous, uh, f- not famous, f- favorite um, uh, Quotations from an early Buddhist sutra. is There's a small sutra in one of the uh, collections of Pali Canon. And this uh, quotation is echoed in many of the Mahayana sutras. But in the Pali Canon, it's, it's, it says something like this. The Buddha says to the disciples, this mind, or this heart, because it's the same word uh, in uh, Asian languages, this heart, O monks, is luminous, is luminous, only it is defiled by adventitious defilements from outside. In this little passage, which is the beginning of about a one-page little sutra, it's the germ of the whole Mahayana Buddhist idea of Buddha nature, or, or natural or inherent awakening. And what it's saying is that the nature of the heart, the human being, of the soul, or however you want to look at it. The nature of our consciousness is luminous, which is to say its nature is light, literally light, and also figuratively light, and joyful, and happy, and good. That's its nature. But that adventitious defilements from outside of it have got it all messed up and kind of covered it over, in effect. That's what it's saying. Things from the outside have come and covered it up so that its light may not be apparent, uh, even though it's there. And that's why there's a path. That's why spiritual cultivation is a necessity, so that little by little, through cultivation, you can remove these defilements, allowing the light that's already there uh, to shine through. Now, of course, we would right away ask, well, where did these outside defilements come from, and where did they start from? Where did they start? Like, well, how come they began being there in the beginning? Like, who's at fault here, we, would, we might ask. Like, let's get a lawyer, you know, who's, <laughs> who's at fault? Where did it come from? Where did it, how did it happen in the first place? And the answer is, Buddhism's actual answer is, we don't know. Or, uh, there is no first place. It didn't come from anywhere in the first place, because there is no first place. These these defilements, these adventitious defilements from without, don't have a beginning. There, there, There literally is no beginning. When the question is asked, there is no beginning, is the answer. There is an ending, however. And the ending is... Called nirvana, peace, ease, and the light shining forth. Now, to the Western mind, it seems like a cop out to say there's no beginning. Like, how can you say that? Of course, everything has a beginning. And, you know, the Bible starts in the beginning. The Bible's an answer to the question, you know, what's the beginning? And, you know, for a long time we were all satisfied. Yes, okay, in the beginning was God. But now we're not satisfied with that anymore. But we are satisfied with, in the beginning was the Big Bang. That seems satisfactory. We can believe that. But, but why don't we ask, what about before that? You know, what about before the first word of the Bible, in the beginning? I guess we, we forgot to ask that question. There is no beginning to confusion. Uh, It just is. It's a given. It seems to be a given in the physical world. There it is. I mean, there's no denying it. We don't know where it comes from. We don't know where it began. It's a given. Thank you very much. You know, wow, I guess I needed that. So... Because there's no beginning. Morality, in Buddhism, is not a matter of guilt and sin. There is no concept, the equivalent to guilt and sin. Because there is no godly requirement of us. And therefore, there is no purpose in Repression. There is no need for this deep psychic twist in our desire and in our power relations. It is more of a practical matter of cleaning up our act so that there will be less suffering and less misery for ourselves and for those around us. Because, if you've noticed, when human beings are miserable and suffering, they have a way of letting others know about it and spreading that around. So it really is, in other words, would be highly um, impractical for me to be peaceful and happy without any concern for the happiness and peacefulness of those around me, because I could never be peaceful and happy if everybody around me is miserable and taking it out on me. There would be no way I could really be peaceful and happy. So morality here is a matter of bringing happiness to our lives. It's actually a practical necessity to reduce suffering and misery. And the assumption made in Buddhism that we're fundamentally whole and good, that reality itself is by its nature whole and good, and that due to a beginningless, adventitious screw-up, that's nobody's fault, but seems to be built into the nature of things, We have strayed from this wholeness and goodness, and because of this, we're becoming, you know, we're unhappy and we're sick. And the purpose of the path of religious practice is to bring us back to health and to wholeness. And it's often remarked that the Buddhist teaching is compared to a doctor's diagnosis and cure, because that's the sense of it It's it's for health and wholeness. Uh, Classical Buddhism says that practice consists in three studies, or three parts. Uh, One part is meditation, one part is ethics or morality, and one part is wisdom. And that these three studies are like the three legs of a tripod, that we all need to be developed equally in order for the vessel uh, to stand with stability. Morality calms and clears the mind from the agitation that comes with shoddy conduct. And this seems to be empirically true, that when you break laws and do bad conduct, it makes you nervous. Now, you may be very good at handling that nervousness and even channeling the anxiety and the energy. And and I think uh, this is to be a really good crook. I think you have to be able to channel anxiety and the energy of anxiety in toward the, the, the goals that you're trying to achieve. But it is anxiety, and it is nervousness. And if you had the chance to look within yourself, you would see that. So that's why morality and ethical conduct is a sort of basis for meditation practice to calm and clear the mind. And then you can meditate, and meditation deepens and enriches a mind that has a baseline uh, of calmness and clarity. And that mind, deepened and enriched by meditation practice, can really appreciate, or really touch its own luminous nature. And maybe that's maybe what enlightenment is in, in Buddhism, is a mind... Uh, enriched by meditation that can really appreciate its luminous nature so that there can really be a sense of self-regard and wholeness, not because one believes it, but because one has touched it uh, on one's cushion. Then, based on that uh, uh, sense of the mind's nature, wisdom will cognize, express, and put into action the beauty of that nature. So those are the practices in Buddhism and how morality fits into them. So it's a much more straightforward matter, at least as it appears to us now, in our culture, coming from elsewhere. There's suffering. We all, I think, appreciate this. Uh, Suffering is not... uh, a small, marginal fact of life, it seems to be a fairly central fact, and uh, naturally we all want to reduce or end suffering for ourselves and others, and so there's a path uh, in which suffering can be reduced and ended, and in that path uh, morality is an absolutely necessary component. So, there's no angst here. There's no struggle. There's no need to repress because we understand our suffering and we want to reduce it. That's what we want. So we don't really have to uh, squelch you know, our desire because our desire, in the end, if we really look within ourselves, is for happiness and peace and we come to understand, through our own experience, the importance of morality for that. There's no need here for a God to command us you know, you need a God to command you when you're operating against yourself, right? You need a force bigger than yourself to frighten you to death so that you won't be doing these bad things, right, that you want to do. Well, we don't have this mechanism in the practice. There's no sense that we are, are or are not good or bad. There's just a sense of the recognition that a certain kind of conduct will create Suffering a certain kind of conduct will reduce suffering and give us what we need to go deeper and deeper with that reducing and ending of suffering. So morality is simply a part of a program that leads us back to what we are and what we have always been. And there's a sense in Buddhist ethical practice that no one will be perfectly ethical at all times. In other words, human imperfection is a given and an assumption. We don't expect otherwise, but if we're clear about the goal and we will continue to make our best efforts toward it with good, a good spirit and good expectations, then we'll be successful, however much we can be. So this is a precepts, morality, and ethical conduct uh, as early Buddhism saw it. Then it's another story uh, how this to get from there to the sixteen bodhisattva precepts in Zen, which have a whole other dimension that I haven't mentioned and I won't mention now because that would take too long. But in another talk, uh, sometime elsewhere, uh, I'll mention it. But don't worry; it'll, it'll be on the it'll be on the internet, so you could you could hear the part two. But I have a few footnotes because I, since I since I wrote this talk and was thinking about it. I noticed a few things. Apparently, uh, people are thinking nowadays about ethics and morality, and there's a lot of thought about it. So uh, so that maybe you saw a couple of days ago, or last week or something like that, a David Brooks column on this subject. Sometimes I read David Brooks in the Times, you know, uh, online, and he had a column about this. And I don't remember exactly what it said, but... Uh, what I got out of it, anyway, was... Uh, He's talking about uh, new work on morality that, that that compares the long history of philosophical discussion about morality with the simple feeling, the human feeling, of doing good. And and Brooks doesn't reference Buddhism in his column, and I, and I doubt that, that he's a Buddhist, but he doesn't have to be, because... Contemporary psychology has been so influenced by Buddhism that sometimes it's hard to tell, you know, where Buddhism comes into it, and where it's just there, you know, crypto Buddhism, you know. But uh, this is very much like what I'm saying, you know, what I've been saying. There's no doubt that the positive feeling of doing good and the nervous and self-harming. Actual feeling of not doing good or doing bad, I mean, these things are actually really palpable. If you have access to yourself, and this is the thing with people who do bad, you know, actions a lot, almost invariably have very little access to their inner lives and don't feel. In fact, they have pain that they're not aware of. Often, this is often the case, right? And, and therefore, out of that pain, they're, they're, they're acting in ways, self-destructive ways, right? I mean, this is why, to a great extent, we now understand people do bad conduct. And, and, and this is reported over and over again by people who work in prisons. You know, meditating, meditation teachers who work in prison are tremendously... Gratified by the work because they find out that when prisoners are given, through meditation practice, access to their hearts, they begin to see their inner condition and they begin to be dismayed at what they have done and they begin to heal and they begin to really turn around. Once they have access to what's inside, they begin to notice that they've been addicted to a bad feeling, the way you can be addicted to a drug that is harming you. So that that, that these are actual feelings, human feelings, of doing good or doing bad. So although uh, Nietzsche might have been wrong, uh, his whole thing about the will to power and so on, he really was expressing something that he felt and saw was accurate in the society around him, the power of repression. And the amount of force needed to overcome repression to really give us the permission to look inside and see what's really going on. So anyway, you, you can look up that David Brooks column. I thought it was interesting. Also, last footnote and then I'm finished. I was also uh, reading, uh, listening to the radio the other day, and there was a Harvard psychologist on the Terry Gross show. Do you, do you have the Terry Gross show in New York? Yeah, and NPR has it. And uh, <clears throat> so there was a psychologist on there speaking about child rearing. And we just had a grandchild, so I'm interested in child rearing again after after many years. What's that? I heard some about that. Yeah, yeah, you heard that, yeah. So he said something that struck me. He said that he was complaining about the current fad in child rearing uh, for self-esteem. You know, that every child, he was saying that you know every child is constantly being praised and encouraged for everything that that child does. Like, you know, throw the ball far, great. Drop it, great. You know, whatever you do, praise should always be administered because a child needs uh, self-esteem. And he said, this is a bad idea. He says, not everything that a child does is necessarily praiseworthy, and children are smart, and they understand that half the praise, or 90% of it, is fake anyway. And you end up with less self-esteem, you know, rather than more, when you think that the basis of self-esteem is performance. So you should always be praised on your performance. And he said, why not make virtue the basis of self-esteem. Why not make virtue the basis of self-esteem? Because virtue, and he used the word virtue, which is a very old-fashioned word that nobody ever uses anymore. But it really means the power, it literally means in in English and in, in also other languages as well, it means the power that we feel inside when we do good, when, we, when, our, when, when our actions come from a center in which we feel doing good is who we are. And virtue is not a matter of performance or talent or acquired skill. It's a human capacity that everyone is capable of. And anybody can manifest virtue Beautifully, suppose that was the basis for self esteem rather than performance. So maybe we should be bringing the word virtue back into fashion because a society in which performance or skill or appearance or accomplishment or comparison, uh, you know, one to another is the basis for how we value ourselves, that's a society that is very vulnerable to these old toxic roots that we're trying to overcome. I think we activate those old roots when we base our sense of self-worth and self-esteem on these various performative values. A society in which virtue is emphasized and is the basis for the building of a self and self-esteem is a happy society by comparison. And and I think that along with all of our uh, current economical woes and disappointments, it may be that it's not just about the money. It may be that we've invested our whole sense of self and worth in all the things that all this activity represented, and now we're a little bit at a loss. What are what are we going to do now? Well, maybe this is an answer to that. Maybe we need to shift the ground uh, for what we think it means to be a person, what we think it makes. What, what we think makes a person valuable in this world to oneself uh, and to others. So, anyway, I wanted to uh, talk to you about that tonight. I've been thinking about it. And uh, while I didn't say it so much in my talk, I think it's, uh, I hope it's obvious to all of you that in our tradition, uh, the basis of all of this is not a belief system. I'm not arguing here we should all believe in goodness and virtue. We should all believe that we should be good people. That's not the basis of it. The basis of it is looking within, with honesty and understanding your own heart. And that means uh, work on the cushion meditation practice. That's, I mean, there are different ways of approaching this, obviously, but in our tradition, that's the way that we approach it, with a minimum of of, um, theology and ideology, and really privileging the experience that we have coming back over and over again, over time, with intensity, uh, to the cushion. And... uh, so if you if this makes sense to you and you're thinking to yourself I would like to sh- make some shift you know in the way that I am living my life and viewing my life I think the most powerful thing you can do is establish a meditation practice. The purpose I think of a place like this is to support that practice but most of us in reality probably do it at home regularly because maybe it's in New York every place is very hard to get to I found this out you know. <laughs> You want to go anywhere, it's like very hard. So it's probably hard to come here, you know. So you, can, you can't come, you know, every day, twice a day or something like that. But you can come with some regularity and you can also uh, meditate at home. And meditation practice exists in a context. So there's some, some teaching, some community, some encouragement, because it's not just like a scientific thing like a pill. Take this, call me in the morning. It's a culture. Anyway... That's the basis of it in in Zen practice. So, the end. That's all. (laughs) Um, I think that we don't have too much time left. So, how about if we take just 10 or 15 minutes in case anybody has any uh, comments or questions. Uh, And I'll try... Next time I come to have a shorter, simpler talks. Mm-hmm. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by the Brooklyn Zen Center. Our programs are given free of charge and made possible by the donations we receive. For more information on supporting Brooklyn Zen Center, please visit the giving section of brooklynzen.org.